Well, good evening. Good to see you tonight. Welcome to our Bible study. We're looking at the book of Zechariah from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet and the 6th century, 600 years before Christ. And we've entitled a study, A New Day for God's People. And so we're glad that you're here to study God's Word with us. Those of you joining us online, we welcome you as well. I always have a lot of people joining on Wednesday night from literally everywhere, all over the United States, and so the area as well. So wherever you are and however you're joining us, we welcome you also. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and we will begin looking at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 6, or rather, I'm sorry, uh, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 8, through chapter 5, verse 4. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again tonight for your love for us, and thank you, God, for this passage, for this book. God, thank you for the visions that you gave Zechariah that meant so much to God's people back in, in, that, in the 6th century, and God, help us to, to take those pr principles and truths out of what you told him and apply to our day today so we can please you just as they please you also. Thank you for Jesus, what he's done for us, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we always begin our Bible study with a quiz, so I guess you're ready for it, aren't you? You don't look real ready for it tonight, but uh, anyway, we've got seven questions for you from our previous weeks, and let's see how many of these seven that you can get. If you want to jot them down, you can. If you want to just get, keep up with them in your mind, you can do that what, what, however you want to do it. First question is, what does the name Zechariah mean? Now, don't answer out loud. You can write it down or, or um, uh, just put it in your mind there. What does the name Zechariah mean? That's a layup. I'm giving you a first, an easy one just right off the bat there. Question number two, how many visions did Zechariah see? How many total visions, the number, did Zechariah see? Question number three, how long had the work of rebuilding the temple been stopped by the time Zechariah began to prophesy? You remember they came back from Babylon, started working on it, got discouraged and quit, and then Zechariah started prophesying. How long, how many years had they been stopped rebuilding the temple before Zechariah. Question number four, in the fourth vision of Zechariah, how many eyes were on the stone that he saw? He saw a stone with eyes on it. How many more eyes were on it? Question number five, what did Zechariah see in the fifth vision? What did he see? Vision number five. Question number six, which Israelite leader was the fifth vision about? Fifth vision, he saw, a, uh, 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 saw this object, and it was about one of the leaders. Only had two leaders, so it was about one of their two leaders. What was his name? And question number seven, in the fifth vision, what object did God say would be laid bare? He saw an object, and he says, it's in front of you now, but it's going to be made a plain. It's going to be laid bare. What was the object he saw right in front of him? These are easy, so. All right, let's go back and look at the answers, see how many you got. Question number one, what does the name Zechariah mean? Yahweh remembers. That's exactly right. They thought God's, people thought God had forgotten them. And Zechariah's name means God remembers you. Question number two, how many visions did Zechariah see? Eight. All right, really good. We're off to a good start. Question three, how long had the work of rebuilding been stopped by the time Zechariah, Zechariah prophesied? 
18 years, man, y'all are doing awesome. Everybody's getting an A tonight. That's good. Question four, how many eyes were on the stone in the fourth vision? Seven. That's exactly right. Seven eyes, number of perfection, completeness on the stone in the fourth vision. Question five, what did Zechariah see in vision number five? A lampstand, I heard somebody say it, a golden lampstand. That's exactly right, lampstand. And then question number six, which Israelite leader was the fifth vision about? Zerubbabel, that's exactly right. He was the one that came back, led the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple, Zerubbabel. And then question number seven, in the fifth vision, what object did God say would be laid bare and made a plain? A mountain, that's exactly right. He saw a mountain of rubble, of piles of stone, one on top of each other. God said those will all be gone. Everything will be rebuilt and that will be made, the mountain will be made a plain and made laid bare. Very good. Anybody get all seven? All right, we got some good. All right, very good. Some A pluses tonight, so that's good. All right, let's look at the background before we get to our passage again tonight. This helps us to put into context and understand the book better. You remember, God's people went in bondage to Babylon their 70 years because of their sinfulness. God told them after 70 years, you're going to get to go back home. So after 70 years, you can go back. The problem is most of them didn't want to go back. Why? Well, the land is in rubble. Remember when they were taken away? They burned everything, they, all the crops, all the fields, the cities were in rubble and piles of stone. Everything's just in rubble. And so why, what, there's nothing to go back to. In Babylon for 70 years, they got jobs, they got homes, their families there, they raised kids, they raised grandkids. It's been 70 years. So they just kind of stay there. So even though God said you can go back, a small number, only 50,000 of them went back. When they got there, man, they had a task in front of them. You got to rebuild the temple. You got to rebuild Jerusalem. Everything is charred. It's in rubble. There's no way to make a living. You don't have very many funds. Uh, most of the people that went back were older. The younger people stayed in Babylon. So what workforce do you have to rebuild the temple? So when they went back, those 50,000 that went back got really discouraged. So as they were there, really discouraged, God raised up a prophet named Zechariah to encourage them and told them several things. One of the things he said was they had started rebuilding the temple. They got the foundations laid. They got the altar built back up so they could offer sacrifices for their sins and then it stopped. They got discouraged, just quit. Let's just stop. So for 18 years, they stopped. And so God told them through Zechariah, number one, get back building again because I'm with you. You're going to be able to do it. My glory is going to return to this city. <clears throat> Second thing he told them, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt and your greater glory is going to be better than your first glory. So the best days are ahead of you. Sometimes we need to hear those messages, don't we? Sometimes you come to church, you're discouraged, life is not going well, and you just need to hear God tell you, get back to doing what you know is right, and second of all, your better days are ahead of you. I'm going to be with you. There are good days to come that, that's going to follow. So that was kind of the message through these eight visions. Vision number one, vision of horsemen, which was to encourage those 50,000 to return. 
vision two, four horns and craftsmen who would punish those nations that had, uh, that had, had uh, carried Israel away. Vision three was a man with a measuring line or a tape measure in his hand to show that the Israel's glory, Jerusalem's glory is going to be greater in the days ahead. And then vision number four was Joshua the high priest to encourage him in his work for the Lord. Now we're to vision number five. Go to your outline. We will look at chapter 4, verses 8 through 14. Letter A on your outline tonight. You'll see on the screen there. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 14. Now, this is the second half of the fifth vision. Let me give you the first half. One night, Zechariah wasn't asleep. Vision is when you're awake, dreams when you're asleep. So he was awake, and he received all eight visions in one night. The fifth vision, he saw a golden lamp stand holding a light. He was awakened, and the angel said, what do you see, Zechariah? And he said, well, I see a golden lamp stand. It's got a bowl on top of it. It's got seven lamps on top of it. And it's got seven lips or spouts that are coming out from all around it where olive oil pours out. And have two olive trees beside it. He said, it's good. What do these mean? Zechariah said, I have no clue. I don't know what it means. And so the angel said, Zechariah, here's what I want you to tell Zerubbabel. Now they had two leaders. One was Joshua, the high priest. The second one was a man by the name of Zerubbabel who was rebuilt. He was the leader rebuilding the temple. Here's what I want you to tell Zerubbabel. That temple is going to be rebuilt. He's going to do it. But it's not by might, and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit I'll rebuild it. You don't have to have the most amount of money. You don't have to have young labor. You don't have to have a lot of labor. I'm going to help you do it. So it's not by might, but not by power. By my spirit, says the Lord, and I will help you rebuild it. This mountain in front of you will become a plain, the mountain, a pile of rubble of stones, And whenever that last top stone goes on to complete the temple, all the people are going to rejoice and shout, grace, grace to the Lord. And then that's where we left off last week. So let's pick back up with verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his house. His hands shall complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So this is what the angel telling Zechariah. So what he said was, Zechariah began the building of this temple. He is going to be the one to complete it. What does Paul tell us in Philippians 1, 6? He who has begun a good work in you in Jesus Christ will continue it, complete it to the day of redemption. Same thing here. What God starts God finishes. You ever known people that what they start, they don't finish? Got a lot of great ideas, a lot of projects, just never finish any of them. God's not one of those. Whatever God starts, God's going to finish. So if God has saved you tonight and through Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about falling away. You don't have to worry about not being a child of his anymore. What he started in you, he's going to complete He told Zerubbabel, you started it, I'm going to see you through to the finish line. Now, he had started in about 536 B.C. 
We know that the temple was completed in 515 B.C. So, when did this Zechariah speak this? When did this oracle come? Probably around 519 B.C. So, that means about four years after this verse, it came true. And the temple was completed and the top stone went on and the people rejoiced. Now, i got a question for you. In Ezra chapter 5, verse 16, we are told Sheshbazar, a man by the name of Sheshbazar, laid the foundations of the temple. Wait a minute. We're told here Zerubbabel laid the foundations of the temple. So is the Bible wrong? No, the Bible's never wrong. What happened was both men had started it. Zerubbabel will finish it. Sheshbazar was one of the first ones that came back as well. Zerubbabel too. Ezra, writing from a different perspective, emphasized Sheshbazar's work and Zechariah Zerubbabel's work. So both men laid the foundation and Zerubbabel would be the one who helped finish it. Now whenever the angel said, when all the people see this temple rebuilt, they'll all know that I was the one speaking to you and God really was in this message. Makes me wonder, were they questioning it at the time? Why would the angel have a need to say, and when it happens, you're going you're gonna to know for sure I was telling you the truth. Why would he need to say that unless they were questioning it? So there must have been some of those people who were watching Zerubbabel work, thinking, it's never going to happen. You're wasting your time. That temple's not going to be rebuilt. Look how much it took Solomon to build the first one. It's never going to happen. And so it could be you had some doubters in the room because the very next verse tells us there were doubters. Look at verse 10. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Let me explain that. What he said in verse 10 was, whoever has despised the day of small things, when that temple's built, they will rejoice. Here's what happened. Whenever Zerubbabel started to rebuild that temple again, just from rocks and rubble and nothing, there were people who were standing around scoffing at him. What do you think? You're going to rebuild a temple? You have nothing to work with. You've got older people. You've just got a few of them. When Solomon built it, we had to bring in people from other countries to build a temple. You're going to do it? And there were those that scoffed. And whenever Zechariah prophesied, they were still scoffing because they were despising the small things, those insignificant things. And God said here, whoever despises the day of small things are going to rejoice when they see it. Because they thought, how do you rebuild it with meager means and resources? But when it's completed, they're going to be ashamed that they doubted God. And just to give you a sneak peek, it's exactly what happened. You know, all through the Bible, God has used small things, hasn't he? Whenever he got ready to set the plan of salvation in motion, he used a little baby by the name of Isaac in Genesis 21. And then whenever he got ready to deliver God's people from Egypt, he used the cry of a little baby 
on the Nile River that Pharaoh's daughter heard that turned out to be Moses. And then whenever he had a giant who was oppressing Israel, he used a shepherd boy with a slingshot. And then Jesus used a little boy's lunch to feed 5,000. And then Paul was delivered from death with a rope and a basket. Never despise the small things. God uses them to accomplish great things. And tonight, you may feel like a small thing. God, what can you do with me? Look at my past. Look at my present. What can you do with me? But never despise what you think's insignificant. Because God has always chosen those small things, those insignificant things, to accomplish the great things. So they would be glad and rejoice when they had already despised the small things. Now, notice he says, and they shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. What on earth is he talking about? Well, what is a plumb line? A lot of you know. Builders, carpenters, painters. A plumb line, same today as it was then. Plumb line is a line or a cord with a weight at the end of it on one end. They call it a plumb bob many times. With a weight on the end. And you use gravity to basically determine right angles. So you'll drop it and it, it's verticality or something that's perpendicular. And things are straight that way. Carpenters, painters, other people use them. Use a plumb line to make sure things are straight. In the book of Amos, God gave a plumb line into the hand of Amos and says, hold this plumb line out and ask God's people what it means. Well, all the builders would go, well, it's a plumb line. He'd say, no, no, no. This is God's plumb line. Because whenever you get a plumb line, you determine what's straight. And he said, I'm looking at my people. You're not very straight. You're living crooked. You're living off plumb. And so Amos was one of the ones that he said, the plumb line is to remind God's people you need to live straight and right, not off like this. So, same with Zerubbabel. They will have the plumb line. They will see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel who was still working doing what God wanted. He still needed the plumb line because even though the, the work is going to be accomplished and the temple would be rebuilt, they still had to do it. God could have snapped his fingers, poof, the temple's back. But he didn't. He used hands and hammers and chisels and plumb lines. He used things to get it done. And you know, God in our lives could snap his fingers and change things. Sometimes he wants to use you to be part of the, the answer. Sometimes he wants you to be involved in the process. And that's the same thing he did with Zerubbabel. And then he said in verse 10, the seven are the eyes of the Lord. Seven what? Seven eyes on the stone. Remember that in vision four? Seven eyes on the stone. These are the eyes of the Lord watching the whole earth. Sometimes I think that we live our lives thinking God's not watching he is. He is. And here he says, seven eyes, number perfection. God's watching everything about the rebuilding of that temple. 
He's watching it all, and he will rejoice with you when it's finally rebuilt. So remember, God's eyes are not blinded to us. They watch us as well. Go to verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? Verse 12, and a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Let me explain. Next, Zechariah asked specifically, there are two olive trees in this vision. I have no clue what they mean. And the angel of the Lord said, why? You understand? Really? Like he should have understood. He said, no, I don't, I don't know. He said, well, one of them has oil pouring out of the spouts. Remember the seven spouts that oil comes out? And it's golden oil. What's golden oil? Well, if you look back in the Old Testament, there was nothing that was golden oil. You had golden lampstands, you had gold in the temple. There's no reference to golden oil. What was it? Probably olive oil because it's golden in color. So olive oil all through Scripture, very significant. It's mentioned about 200 times in the Bible. Olive oil. 200 times in the Bible. Olive trees were noted as far back as hundreds of years before Jesus. And really even also hundreds of years before Jesus was the first time they started harvesting oil from the olives of the tree. And that went all the way back to Haifa in Israel, which is northern Israel. And so it's, it was used in a lot of different ways, olive oil was. It was used to anoint priests. It was used for healing. They thought if you put olive oil on you, it would, would heal you. It was used in foods, used in breads, uh, used in medication, as medication, used as a moisturizer on your skin, used as an offering to the Lord, used as currency instead of money. They would exchange olive oil as, as money or currency. So it had a lot of uses throughout Scripture. But as you go to the New Testament, you see olive oil used in a, in a different way. Jesus was the picture of how olive oil was used. First of all, you remember as he rode into Jerusalem, but right before he died on the cross, he rode in on a donkey, and they laid palm branches in front of him and, 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 and shouted, Hosanna, hail to the king. And they were olive branches because they were symbols of peace. But also, the picture of Jesus' sacrifice was the picture of crushing olives. Olives had three crushings. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed three times, said, my soul is being crushed. And one time, even that so much so that there are sweats of drops of blood like sweat coming out of my forehead. So it's a picture of the olive oil and the crushings. By the way, whenever the olive was crushed in Greek, it was called gatshamanim. What does that sound like? Gatshamanim. Gethsemane, exactly. The Garden of Gethsemane means... The garden of the olive crushings. 
Not a coincidence at all. Jesus went there to be crushed and to pray, and they arrested him in the garden to take him to be our sacrifice. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, olive oil was used as a picture of honor, anointing, and sacrifice. And so, there were two olive trees symbolizing, the angel said, you don't know who this is. No, symbolizing the two leaders they had. Joshua the high priest, we saw a couple of weeks ago, and Zerubbabel, the one who was rebuilding the temple. These are my anointed ones, God said. And most scholars believe those two olive trees representative of Joshua and Zerubbabel because they were the ones who were um, uh, rebuilding the, the temple and rebuilding the country. Notice here at the end of verse 14, whenever he says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Literally means, anointed ones means sons of oil. Now, why were they called that? Well, it could mean that these two men were anointed with the oil of God for their tasks. I'm anointing them with the oil of power to do their jobs. Maybe. Except that the, the Hebrew word that's used for anointing oil in verse 14 is not the same one for their lamps or for the anointing. That's the word yitzar. This is the word shamim that's used. It's different. So because of that, there are some who believe God was saying, I'm anointing them to start growing the olive trees in the land again. Remember, the land couldn't grow anything. It was burned. And then as soon as the 50,000 got back, a drought happened. So some believe that God's referring here in verse 14 that he's going to use those two men to bring the agricultural prosperity of the land back so they can grow crops and so they can eat again. Very possible. That's probably what he meant by the anointing ones. All right, let's go to now to... Um, but first of all, before I do... Just another observation right quick. These two men that he used, Joshua and Zerubbabel, two olive trees. Have you noticed through Scripture and through history how God has often used people in pairs to do great work? Have you noticed that? Um, you have Moses and Aaron led God's people. Joshua and Caleb that led them into the land. Uh, you have Elijah and Elisha that worked together. You have... You had Peter and John, you had Paul and Barnabas, and then in history you had John Calvin and Martin Luther, uh, you had Whitfield and, and Wesley for the revivals, you had Moody and Sankey for the Great Awakenings, you had Billy Graham and Cliff Barrows, and it, it's interesting how God used a lot of people in pairs, all the way from Scripture, all the way to today. Don't know what we make of that, other than there were two men that God used to restore the, the people back to their, their, their heights again in Israel when they had returned. Now let's go to the sixth vision and we'll close. Just a few things to say about that. First four verses and we'll pick up with the, uh, the seventh vision next week. Chapter 5, verses 1 through, one through 4. Next, Zechariah sees vision number 6 of the 8 and he sees a flying scroll not a flying squirrel flying scroll there's a difference 
In this vision, Zechariah looked and he saw a scroll. Remember, that's what they wrote the words on in those days. That was their books. Saw a flying scroll that was unrolled, flying through the air. It wasn't attached to anything. It seemed to be levitating in the air by itself. And it contained writing on it, like a book. On the front side and on the back side, there was writing on it. We're going to see in a moment what was written on it. And what was written on it is interesting. It was the rebuke of the sins of the people written on both sides. Flying through the air, symbolizing the word of God that he saw. God wanted his people to know the sins of the land are going to be judged. Now today, you think about our day. Many people believe opposite of what the Bible teaches. Many people live opposite lifestyles, opposite what the Bible teaches, what the Bible calls sin. So how do we think that we'll get by with it and they couldn't get by with it? So it's important, I believe, to look at the Word of God, Scripture, and what does it say? What does it say how we're supposed to live? What we're supposed to believe? And so he's saying here, the people in the land were diverting from what God had told them. And so because of that, he was going to bring judgment upon the land and remove the wickedness. So visions 6 and 7 of the 8 are about God removing the wickedness from the land that had already developed from the time they returned. Now, Merrill Unger, who was one of the great Bible scholars before he passed away of, of New Testament, Old Testament, both. He says about this, starting in verse, the, the sixth vision, he says, all of a sudden, with vision number six of these eight visions, now vision six takes a sharp turn. The first five visions had been very comforting to God's people. Those 50,000 that returned. First five visions encouraged them, comforted them. It was really good news for them. Encouragement. Keep going. You're doing good. I'm going to be with you. And then we get to vision six. It takes a sharp turn where God all of a sudden starts giving stern warnings that he's a holy God and that he will not tolerate wrong and evil. So all of a sudden it starts to shift. Two specific sins are mentioned in vision five or other vision six. Two sins. Sin number one, don't steal. Eight, the eighth commandment of the ten. And vision number, uh, uh, sin number two, don't swear. Vision number, or the commandment number three. The first took away a neighbor's right. You stole something from them. The second took away God's reverence. So your relationship with others and your relationship with God. So let's look at these. First one. Again, I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? This is the angel talking to Zechariah. I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. So let's stop there for a moment. Zechariah saw this flying scroll and he stopped to tell us how wide it was and how long it was. Why does that matter? 
Is it significant? There are some Bible scholars who say, no, no significance at all. And he's just telling us how long it was, how wide it was. But what I've noticed is whenever the Bible gives you details, they're there for a reason. Is there anything else in the Bible that is 20 cubits by 10 cubits? By the way, how long is that? What's a cubit? Um, that's about 30 feet by 15 feet. So this is a large book. That's a huge book, isn't it? 30 feet by 15 feet. Is there anything else in the Bible that's 30 feet by 15 feet? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, in the tabernacle in Exodus 26, that was the dimension of the holy place. God's presence was. Hmm. And the second time 20 cubits by 10 cubits is mentioned, 1 Kings 6, 3, it was the dimension of the porch in front of the holy place on Solomon's temple. So is God trying to tell them something? I saw this book, it was 20 by, 30 by 15, 20 by 10 cubits. And immediately the minds of the Jews would have gone, Whoa, wait a minute, that's the dimension of the holy place. So that book is God's presence. That book is where God dwells. Is our book the holy place? Is this where God dwells? Is what he says in these pages his word? Yeah. Not a coincidence. And so he, he didn't ask, the angel didn't ask, how long is it? How wide is it? He just volunteered. Oh, that's way, wait, that's 20 by 10. That's significant. Because that's holiness. So this book is holy. Verse 3. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what's on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what's on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. Let's look at those last two verses and we'll close. The angel now explains about this book, flying book. And he says this flying book, this scroll, represents the curses God's going to bring on the people for their sinfulness. And he mentioned two sins specifically, both of them in the Ten Commandments. Now they had 613 commandments. But both of them are in the Ten Commandments. Ten commandments. Commandment number eight we talked about, those that, that kill, or, or rather those that steal. Uh, and commandment number three, those who, who swear against God's name, basically taking his, his holiness. Some are wondering, why did he just pick out those two commandments? Why number three and why number eight? There are ten Ten Commandments, and there are 613 altogether. Why did he only pick out those two? A couple of theories. One theory is, well, these two represent all the rest of them. Uh, James 2.10 kind of talked about, and then, you know, you can, you can have some, some laws that represent all laws, and maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe just use, pull out these two say, these represent all of them. You know, we do the same thing sometimes when we say, oh, everybody was there. Well, everybody wasn't there. 
just a, a way of speaking. And sometimes they did that. It was called a sendoki in those days. Sometimes they did that, and that's maybe what he did. But probably the second interpretation is he pulled out these two because these two commandments deal with how you relate to other people, don't steal from them, and how you relate to God, don't swear falsely by his name. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they break down to four and six. The first four are about your relationship to God, and the last six are about your relationship with other people. So even the Ten Commandments themselves break down into your relationship with God and your relationship to others. And that's basically what Jesus said, wasn't it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbors yourself. So even Jesus talked about both relationships, the horizontal with others, the vertical with God. And I think that's what he's talking about. You must, he says, that if you do anything else, it's sin in the land. You must be right with other people, and you must be right with God. Sometimes we're good at being right with God, especially those that are in church all the time. Oh, yeah, I, I emphasize my relationship with God. But then there are other people you need to forgive you don't. And then sometimes some people are good about relationships. They're good with other people. They're just not on good terms with God right now. They don't go to church. They're not active in his fellowship. They're not reading his word. And so it takes both. You've got to have good relationships with other people. And you've got to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so both is needed. And he closes, that's what he's talking about, I believe. You go to verse 4, and he closes this vision by saying, hey, nobody's going to get away from this. Notice he says, I will send it out, this book of curses, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter even the house of the thief. So if you go into your house trying to get away from what God's saying to you, even there he's going to find you. If, the, if someone who swears against God goes into their house trying to get away from what God said, even there he will find you. There's no place you can run from God. Jonah figured that out, didn't he, after he got swallowed by a fish? You can't run from God. And maybe tonight some of you are running. I don't know. Maybe you're running from what, trying to get away from what God's been saying to you. You can't run. It will find you wherever you go. That's what verse 4 says. It will enter their house and it will consume it, timber and stones. You can't run. And God will find you because we must give an account before him. So God loved them enough to let them rebuild the temple. God loved them enough to give them the power and strength to do it. But God also loved them enough not to just let them live in their sins. He wanted them to be pure like he's pure. They, he wanted them to serve him like, like others had served him in the past. And he wanted his people to be right with others and right with him. Good word for us tonight as we look at what Zechariah said to these visions many years ago. Well, we'll stop there. We will go to vision number seven next week. It's a woman sitting in a basket. That's a strange one, isn't it? And so uh, we'll talk about that next Wednesday night. Hope you have a good week. Let's pray together. If you have any questions or comments afterwards, feel free to see me or email me this week. I'll be glad to, to answer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for your word. How not only it's interesting to study and look at, but it's also applicable to our lives today right where we are. Help us, God, to be people that, that, that please you, that are right with you, and that are right with others. And God, help us to start that 
even tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.